Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. My name is Kenneth Anderson. I'm your host. Tonight, our guests will be Mark Kinsley and Kevin Irwin, who have both done a lot of work with Backpack Harm Reduction. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug here for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to do harm reduction for alcohol. We support any positive change from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. And our guest, um, Mark Kinsley, has been working in public health and harm reduction for many years now. I believe he's been associated with Yale. Um, Kevin Irwin is associated with Tufts University, also working many years in harm reduction, public health. Uh, good evening. How are you guys doing? Doing well, Ken. Great, Ken. Okay, excellent. Um, I want to start by asking you to tell us what is crack cocaine? How is it different from other forms of cocaine like freebase or powder? Why did you go first, Mark? Well, I mean, the difference, I mean, there's not a, a huge amount of difference between crack and, and freebase, but um, basically, you know, crack is it's a, a powerful stimulant that's, um, you know, crack is derived from, you know, cocaine hydrochloride that it goes through a simple process of conversion where it's usually mixed either with uh, cocaine hydrochloride and baking soda, sometimes ammonia, um, and water. And uh, and then it's it's heated up and, you know, turns into a rock form and then um, processed to smoke. Whereas with Freebase, it was primarily, um, you know, Freebase was when cocaine basically was freed of the impurities of the cut or the, you know, the other stuff that was in the cocaine with ether and then heated and vaporized just like, uh, just like crack cocaine is. Okay. So, uh, if, when we see crack portrayed in the media, we see it's like a completely, totally addictive and no one can ever control it. Um, is this true or is this myth or what do you think? Kev, you want to do that or? Um, sure. I mean, that's a big. Uh, it's a big question. I mean, I think it's a myth for uh, pretty much all all forms of drugs when we see that in portrayal in the media. Um, crack, I think, is um, crack is kind of uh, accepted as uh, more than its share of um, of uh, stigmatizing portrayal. Uh, of the folks who who use crack and the way it's used and the consequences of its use, um, and you know, so stigma, the, the the strength of stigma being directly correlated to um, kind of characteristics or attributions that uh, uh, one can 
attached to uh, the folks uh, who are associated with crack use has really been powerful in the case of crack. Um, very much um, attached to uh, poor uh, images, attached to poor uh, inner city uh, and dark-skinned folks since crack really came on the scene in the 80s. And that's been really a durable uh, image as uh, as limited and uh, really inaccurate as it is. Um, I, uh, this is still what we see uh, in the media today, I believe. Um, and so, crack, you know, crack has certainly suffered its um, bumps, bumps and bruises, and, and misrepresentations in the media. Yes, yeah, one, one of the, go ahead. One of the things that's interesting about that too, Ken, is is the fact that I mean, I think a lot of what you know, the media, which has never portrayed any illicit substance like they have crack cocaine. And and some of that was purely based on political um, reasons and, you know, the whole hype on the war on drugs. But, you know, because of the way that crack is delivered and the intensity of the high, it it really lended to the fact in, in what they were trying to put out into the media that this this drug would become instantly addictive and what Kevin said is that you know you can't you can't pigeonhole any particular drug that way first first of all it's pharmacologically impossible that one you know instant hit of any particular substance is is instantly addictive it's just it's it doesn't even make sense um but people ran with it, and when you feed mainstream, you know, America with these images and portrayals of, like Kevin said, particularly, you know, dark-skinned individuals, um, you know, it, people run with it, you know, and that's what they did. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two really important um important phenomena that kind of underpin the the misunderstanding of crack and the way it's been portrayed in the media. One is the actual historical context of when crack came came on the scene. So if you, we can think back into the 1980s and in the midst of uh, coming off of a recession and uh, Reaganomics taking hold and really a, a, uh, a large uh, um, Experience of deindustrialization and folks, um, you know, leaving urban centers, uh, calls for uh, welfare reform, and you know the, the heinous um, kind of culture wars that were happening at the time. And I think crack really got caught up in all of that and was um, was a really powerful tool for scapegoating certain populations. And then the other the other piece of this, um, as you said, um, you, you know, this this image of the kind of uncontrollable um, features of crack use, I mean, I think it is it is true that, um, you, you know, there's features of the, the kind of patterns of use that some folks experience in their most chaotic use since, um, you know, crack is a, is a fairly short-acting drug, and, and um, when, when folks do get into um, trouble with it. It's they, you know, they express the kind of characteristics of 
um, somebody who's using a lot of stimulants, first of all, and and the type of use that, you know, when people go on runs, as it is, and, and use for two or three days at a time, um, you know, they become uh, certainly very visible um, and uh, engaged in, um, you know, illicit activities sometimes that... that um, it is absolutely true for you know a small portion of the folks who use crack, but that visibility um, and that kind of chaotic use, I think, has been burned into the kind of um, image of what a crack user is in this country. And it's you know un- unfortunately it's not uh, entirely accurate, um, but this is this is what folks seen and come to understand is a crack user. Yeah, and I think that that whole piece in and of itself lends to, you know, how we have not done, quite honestly, really good jobs around treatment, prevention, interventions. All these things are a direct result of what Kevin was talking about with, you know, these images where, um, you know, people were afraid quite honestly, to even approach someone that may have been under the influence of crack cocaine because, you know, they were told these are crazy people, they can't um, control themselves, they're, um, you know, they're just unreasonable at points, and, and oftentimes it's it's not the truth, um, you know. Because of the nature of the short act and high that Kevin was speaking of, people will do some some behaviors that um, oftentimes they would not engage in. And, and you know, and, and building on that, I mean, you know, Mark and I talk a lot about the the, the whole crack baby um, mythology is an important piece of this as well. Um, as, you know, we all know that um, I- images and uh, a threats or perceived threats to children have you know, been very effective in driving uh, drug policy for a long time. Um, as, as in addition to uh, perceived threats from um, various groups uh, of of color, and you know, crack certainly um, fit the bill in that regard. As as um, uh, you know, the the myth of the crack baby grew in the 1980s. Um, most of the images that one would see uh, when one saw a crack baby in the media, of course, was a, a dark-skinned baby. Um, and, and, you know, we have now the benefit of a couple things. I mean, we have the benefit of a lot of data mm-hmm. over time, and, and we have the benefit of, of you know, 20-plus years um, where we can look at the, the babies that in fact were born during that period of time that um, you know media driven um, narratives about who those babies were and, and what kind of lives they were going to have and how they were fundamentally going to grow up to be um, maladjusted and, and antisocial and not have any chance of being productive citizens um, n- n- now these you know these kids are are uh, 20 years old, and, and we can see that, um, in fact, that didn't happen at all. Um, and 
we have the benefit of data, like I said, that uh, on one hand, um, from a kind of demographic point of view, we know that most of the folks who did smoke crack and continue to um, to use crack are are um, white folks, anyways, and and we know that the um, image of the crack baby and what the what the infant was in fact experiencing is is not at all um, what we thought it was, and we have you know a number of um, number of studies now probably the the most um, the most thorough being a, a meta analysis all, all the way back in 2001 um, out of Harvard that um, integrated all of the all of the science that had been done up to that point um, about neonatal, neonatal impact uh, of crack use and we've you know come to understand that certainly there's there's um, higher rates uh, when um, when pregnant women are are using crack um, you know higher rates of of lower birth weight babies and um, and early deliveries uh, but we've also come to understand that you know the we can really under we can really kind of comprehend this um, as a function of the environment in which the mom um, was gestating the baby, right? So, the, you know, the, when the mom is malnourished, um, when the mom is um, under constant stress, when the mom is, um, you know, suffering oftentimes multiple kinds of traumas, um, psychological and physical, um, you know, so the, that's the environment uh, around the womb in which the baby's uh, developing and and so it's um you know not it's not a surprise that that babies um are in fact uh, malnourished just just like the mom um but the the idea that um there was something else fundamentally going on there neurologically or that there was some kind of permanent um uh damage um, and inevitable damage being done to a fetus because the mom was using crack um, is not really accurate and, and really not helpful. Right. You know, I, I, and it's it's interesting. I think that anybody that, well, whether you've reared a child or not, I mean, the development of the child is, you know, it's a dynamic process to begin with, and, and there's a there's a lot of, contributing factors around failure and successes, you know, much of which, you know, what we've learned through with what Kevin was saying is that probably, without a doubt, the, the single most important factor affecting any life for, of a child is the, you know, is the environment, um, which they're reared. And, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, what we've seen through the years of the research that's been done and the backgrounds that have been looked at is that a lot of of the women um, that were rearing these children um, were either either had limited access to prenatal care or or no access to prenatal care and so it, it contributes to what Kevin was talking about you know with malnutrition and, and the things that uh, 
you know, that were really highlighted in the media where, you know, they talked about babies, you know, shaking and crying uncontrollably and all these things. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors that come along with that. If you look at, um, you know, prenatal exposure to tobacco and Mm -hmm. alcohol and, Mm -hmm. you know, all these other things, um, there's probably, you know, much greater damage in the long run, um, you know, factors for these children than, in fact, you know, what we have seen to the, to the data that cocaine, um, you know, has shown. Um, you know, we know that some, some of the obvious, some of the dose of the cocaine does get through to the, um, you know, to the fetus, and and again, what Kevin said was low birth weight, which in and of itself, let's let's not be mistaken, it it, it has problems. But the term, um, again, lending towards the whole stigma, the term crack baby, absolutely just is more damaging than probably the drug itself, because mm-hmm. of how it. Um, eliminated access to resources, not only for the mother, but after the child was um, born, you know, these kids were were born with a label. Um, And oftentimes, you know, if you looked at what the media portrayed, it it was, you know, young children of color that um, already had limited resources, already were um, under immense pressure through poverty and, 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 you know, lack of, um, you know, resources to begin with. And then given this stigma of being a crack baby, I mean, these kids were followed, you know, you know, constantly being tested for this, being tested for that. And um, when given access to the same resources that other children had, what we've learned is that these kids, grow up and learn and function and develop like any other kid. Okay, let's move on to another topic now. Is there sentencing disparity, prison sentencing disparity between powder cocaine and crack cocaine? No, it's, uh, (laughs) I guess I can start on this one, Kev. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting you know, one of the myths, obviously, that, again, got, you know, really kind of put out into the media was the difference be- between the crack and the cocaine and, you know, what the what the sentencing guidelines should be and what the criminal justice system should, you know, look at around this. And, um, you know, when you come out with the disparities of, um, you know, somebody being... Uh, it's you know the hundred to one disparity between crack and cocaine offenses, um, you know, obviously, you know, was targeted at a particular population. The wholesale distribution of crack cocaine, because of what Kevin was talking about earlier with the with the recession going on at the time that all this stuff started to happen, um, you know, one of the things that economically started to take place was is that there became a, uh, a, you know, crack became a commodity, the corners on every inner city became a commodity, and so 
you know, these 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 hundred to one disparities between having five hundred grams of powder cocaine um, and getting a five year mandatory minimum sentence, or having five grams of powder or crack cocaine and getting that same sentence. Um, you know, it, the, the policies, you know, focused and there, you know, there was obvious surveillance that took place within the inner city communities. And, um, you know, this, I mean, talk about a purely racist um, sentencing guidelines that were set up um, as a result of, you know, the, the disparities between these two particular um, forms of the same product, really. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that uh, it, it's 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 probably the most heinous drug policy in uh, in a country with lots of really um, uh, poor drug policies. Um, it, it makes n- no sense on its uh, on its face, and it's it's even more remarkable to me that it's that it's um taking so long to redress this uh this obviously um unfair uh law that i mean folks have been advocating for a change to to uh, these disparities for years and years and years and you know we finally started to see um uh some movement on this um and negotiating down to you know more like an 18 to one disparity, as if that's actually more acceptable somehow. Um, um, so you know I, I can't imagine that there's any any corollary to this um, in the legal system uh, where um, you know just the the formulation of the drug itself. The, the only difference being that you know. One type of drug has uh, has baking soda in it, and and one type does not. Um, somehow justifies eight and something of the magnitude of eighteen times more punishment. Um, is uh, you know it's just impossible to defend. But that's a testament to the durability of our bad drug policy is that it's been so difficult to change, and continues to be. You know, and, and even with all the information that we have on this can around, and, and, you know, some really good advocacy has been done, some really good work around trying to um, get these laws changed. And if, if you talk to the judges, the individuals that we put into power to be able to, you know, have some kind of distinction from, you know, case to case, this was taken completely out of their hands. And with all the information that we have, there's still less than 50% of the state, even though the judges will say that the disparity is unfair, still less than half the states make, you know, a legal distinction between crack and powder, um, which is just, you know, it's repulsive that we continue to put this, um, this practice you know, into our criminal justice system. You know, the it's just the you know, the uniformity of of what happens 
um, across the judicial guidelines here is just it's fascinating to watch, even though we know that it's it's unjust. And it's had, you know, it's had a really um, horrible synergistic effect with the way that policing around drugs gets done. Um, uh, and you know, we can um, we have now you know lots and lots of data, and we have lots and lots of jails and prisons full with um, people of color. Um, and uh, it, you know, crack uh, crack dealing has always been. Uh, a relatively open air kind of activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so the surveillance uh, and interdiction of uh, of, um, of crack dealing, uh, low level dealing, almost all of it has has always been um, has always been really um, active. But this combined with the fact that um, which we also have known for decades now um, that when folks of color um, uh, do come into contact with the law, they're more likely to be arrested and they're more likely to be charged and they're more likely to be convicted and they're more likely to go to prison. Every step of the way, you know, they they suffered more dire consequences um, than their white counterparts. And, you know, crack has played uh, a really uh, nasty role in filling our jails and prisons to the um, indefensible um, volume that they are today. Yes, I believe you said earlier most of the people that use crack are white, but most of the people in prison for it are people of color. Right. Yeah, I mean, this uh, this has been the case and continues to be the case. Well documented. I mean, you know, when um, when crack first was introduced in South Central, you know, um, you know, South Central LA obviously demographically is, is primarily you know individuals of color, and, and um, you know, you can look at the you know across the nation from South Central to New York to Miami. Of Philadelphia, you know, across the country, where you know the primary buyer of the drug um, is our Caucasian. However, the primary offenders of you know crack penalties and sentencings are are people of color. Um, you know, and I and again, a lot of this has to do with you know the political might and the media out, outlets that, you know, they just outdid themselves with these horror stories of, you know, the, the crack boogeyman, you know. Um, and, and so, you know, there's already, whether people are as open as they've been uh, or not around the, the racism that is, the underlying racism that is um, that takes place in this, you know, it is it's it's fascinating to see the justification of um politicians coming out that you know crack cocaine um is somehow different even pharmacologically than cocaine to justify these laws you know um, mm-hmm. so i mean it would it would be really interesting to see if um 
you know, have presented to the politicians, um, why don't we make the um, the penalties for um, being arrested under the influence, uh, you know, for um, drinking vodka as opposed to drinking um, a wine cooler, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's the same thing. Um, you know, same product, just uh, a little bit more powerful and, you know, in some in some ways. So. What are some of the ways that people can do harm reduction with crack? Well, I mean, you know, first and foremost, I think that part of, you know, harm reduction oftentimes is based on, you know, the individual and in the, in the information and the materials and the resources that somebody has to work with. Um, and, you know, there's a number of ways that you can reduce the harms around, um, you know, using crack. Now, it, there are the prevention of diseases, um, one of the things that we started to do, for example, in um, in Bridgeport in uh, 1992, um, there was a couple of us that um, started to do focus groups based on a, on a resentment that um, came from coming from a training um, at a statewide training for outreach workers where we were told that when it came to doing uh, prevention and outreach to crack users, you should stay f- away from them, whereas with IV drug users, we had all these resources that we could give them and we could help them. And, you know, as someone who has been doing work for a long time, I recognize that crack users oftentimes were putting themselves at just as great a risk as IV drug users, but had nothing to reduce some of that risk. Um, and not that they wouldn't be willing to reduce some of the risk, they just didn't have the resources. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a number of ways that you can do um, at least early interventions on harm reduction with, with the crack using community. And that is by, just like we did with syringe exchange, getting people instruments that will keep them safer during that particular, you know, during the uh, the using. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's important that potentially any time that you use any kind of substance, there is there is the chance of doing harm. Now, as public health or harm reductionists, it's really important that we um, we give people the opportunity to change some of the behaviors and risks that go on. For example, we know, based on research that's been done since the 80s, that there are higher rates of HIV and hepatitis C um, associated with people that use crack. Um, Now, there's not been quite enough um, research done on the modes of transmission, the way that that is transmitted. But we know that people that smoke crack, um, dependent on the instruments that they use, which are oftentimes either metal or glass straight shooters or, or pipes or stems. Now, you can imagine after repeated heating of something metal or something glass, it becomes hot. If you're putting that to your mouth, 
you potentially can burn yourself. Um, and, and in particular with the with the glass um, straight shooters, these straight shooters will break and crack. Now you're smoking on this, you you know cut yourself um, and have open wounds. Now you're engaging maybe in um, you know even you know the basics of um, just sharing that that particular instrument that you're smoking out of. If there's traces, is there potentially the opportunity for transmission? I would say yes. But also there's the activity that sometimes uh, happens along with um, you know using crack, and there's the exchange of sex, uh, whether it's for drugs or money or for whatever. Um, if somebody has uh, you know oral sores and is, you know, given oral sex, there's a porthole for transmission. So one of the easy ways to eliminate some of that is to, um, a basic thing that we discovered, uh, we didn't discover, the the using community through focus groups um, talked about, you know, using, rubber bands to wrap around the um, the stems themselves. We found that to be useful, but, um, you know, we we also found that after repeated heating, rubber bands, you know, pop. And so mm-hmm. what they came up with was, you know, rubber mouthpieces that fit on the end of the stem. And almost immediately what happened was is that people that were coming to engage in um, you know, outreach services for crack users were coming back with no lip wounds or at least a, a huge reduction in lip wounds, which immediately, you know, reduces the, the risk of transmission. The other thing that that does, Ken, is that it gives us the opportunity as, you know, public health outreach workers, home reductionists, to have something to stay connected with people, to stay engaged with people, something that they need, something that they want. Now, whenever we have that opportunity to stay engaged with them for a long period of time, the opportunity to, good, to do good behavioral change takes place. You know, the other thing is is that we, we would put things in there like triple antibiotics um, in mm-hmm. case someone did have a lip wound. We would put condoms in these kits so that people had access in case they were engaging in, in sex. You know, these are really the basics of reducing some of the immediate harms that can be associated with um, this particular form of using. Okay, something I've heard people mention to me is has to do with money, and it's people said they need to pay their bills before they go on a crack run, pay their rent, pay their electric. And they've said that's a harm reduction technique that they use. Mm-hmm. You want to address that, Kevin? Uh, yeah, I wanted to know, have you addressed that at all in your work? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know what, it's not a, i got to be honest with you, Ken, we, it's not, the technique is not any different than we do with any other um, individual that we're doing case management with. Um First of all, one of the myths that's out there, by the way, um, is this myth that people that are using cannot be responsible. 
um, which is, it's just not true, first of mm-hmm. all. And the more that we tell people they can't be responsible, then the more they won't be. But, you know, we talk to folks um, about, you know, the responsibilities that they have around, listen, you have you have rent to pay. You have these bills to pay. Not saying that you, um, you know, it, again, anybody that's ever used drugs for more than a week knows how society looks at them, okay? Mm-hmm. So telling someone, you've got to stop using, just say no. I mean, we know the effects of that. So talking to people about taking care of the other responsibilities that they have in their lives, not necessarily saying to them, listen, you can't use, otherwise you can't pay your bills. What we are saying is that you need to be responsible for the other obligations that you have in your life, setting up money management skills with them, not directly eliminating all the money that they may use to um, to maybe smoke, but what it does is it puts it, it puts the responsibility of taking care of the other things, um, you know, back in the, on their lap. So we, you know, we we set up money management um, systems just like we do with anybody else that uses any other substance or doesn't use any other substance but has trouble with other, you know, taking care of business. And I think just having the dialogue alone is is harm reduction. I mean, you're talking about a population that most of the interactions they have with folks uh, who are not in their immediate network, um, you know, are not not talking about their capabilities, uh, not not talking about you know things like the practical issues like money. Um, mostly, they're hearing about you know how they have to stop using drugs and. Um, you know, simply having a pragmatic, practical conversation with somebody about that stuff uh, has an effect. It may not be an immediate effect today, but over the long run, um, it's it's a you know honoring that every person has the capacity to make decisions for themselves um, mm-hmm. is 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 harm reduction. Yes, very definitely when people come at you and get in your face and say, you have to stop this, the first thing you do is fight back and say, no, I won't. I mean, this is the normal reaction. The more you debate, the more somebody debates back, the better reasons they have not to change. Mm-hmm. It's really well, important. You know, the problem is that we don't really have much to offer folks. Um, you know, it's like Mark Mark was saying. If if we're going to tell folks to stop using, we don't have much to offer them to stop using. Um, but we have a lot to offer them uh, in the meantime, right? And and that's the work that they were so great at pioneering in in Bridgeport. Um, and you know, Mark and I will. Uh, have, <laughs> We've been talking about this over more than a decade now, and and we'll continue to talk about it. Uh, And I think we'll probably talk about it over the next 20 minutes. Um, There still is not stuff out. There's not funding out there for folks who use crack. Um, There's not uh, coordinated uh, attention really paid to the crack-using community. And um, I, I think... You know, in somewhat, it's in some some respects, it's a 
it's a function of um, uh, how crack and crack use is regarded uh, in contrast to injection drug use. There's, there's, um, you know, there's been a steady stream of um, interest, uh, certainly not federal funding, as we all know, but interest and support at the local level uh, for expanding needle exchange since the early mm-hmm. 90s. Um, and part of that has to do with, you know, the science behind it. I mean, we could demonstrate, right, that um, HIV infections uh, would, in fact, uh, and were, in fact, being reduced. And you could do that because um, not simply by testing people, but because you could test syringes, right? You had a vector, and, and you could you could estimate that you were, you were taking, you know, uh, the risk out of the community. I mean, you could quantify this, and and once you can quantify it reliably, and you can start attaching, um, you know, what, whatever is of interest to people. I mean, um, you know, we're interested in improving people's quality of life, but um, if you're interested in how many dollars it costs to treat somebody with HIV for a lifetime, fine. You know, you can quantify that too, right? Hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands. And there's no corollary for crack. I mean, you can't, there's, there, it's really difficult to do the science that can reliably demonstrate that you're um, reducing X number of HIV infections um, because there's no vector. It doesn't really do any good to test um, crack stems. And it's often the case that folks that are um, using crack are, are you know possibly using other kinds of stuff, and it's it's just really difficult to um, you know in a formal way enroll a cohort of 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 people and and do a a study uh, where some people get some particular kind of harm reduction service and other people don't, and then you compare them to see you know what the HIV rates are. I mean that's not even um, Im- Im- imaginable in terms of um, doing it ethically in the first place. So I think that and the fact that there's also no, you know, there's no corollary treatment, efficacious treatment like um, methadone maintenance therapy and now um, therapy with suboxone. Um, You know, we can say what we want about the way that we establish methadone maintenance programs in this country. Um, You know, probably, probably, have an awful lot of improvement to be made, but um, we have them, and they're accessible and affordable in a lot of places, and and they work. Um, and there's there's no corollary to that for for crack cocaine. And so, you know, absent effective treatment uh, or uh, the ability to demonstrate that we're you know reducing lots of um, HIV infections and saving lots of money, um, that combined with all the stigma. Um, that we've been talking about um, for the last half hour um, has has just resulted in a c- complete dearth of resources for folks. And the thing that you know Mark and I talk about all the time, um, and that we've been trying to uh, reverse, is that oftentimes, even among folks uh, in the drug using community and among folks who are in the safety net, right, folks who are out there doing the work on the street, uh, we still see oftentimes too much stigmatizing of crack users 
even among the folks who are supposed to be out there to help them. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 the whole piece around treatment, Ken, that is, it has always been fascinating is, you know, again, where, you know, if you read the headlines of the New York Times or the Washington Post, whatever it may be, you know, when crack, you know, the most addictive drug ever, take one hit and you're addicted. Well, you know, I can't tell you how many times folks that have been motivated to go to treatment have come to Kevin and I. And, you know, if it's so damn addictive, how come that every time I call a treatment center to try to get somebody in the treatment that is just smoking crack cocaine, I can't get them a bed? And, um, you know, it, it just lends to the whole stigma. And crack users know this. They know that when they come to us and they want help, and they're in a place where they're motivated to go to treatment, they know that they can't get a bed. So what, what inevitably ends up happening is that we have to manipulate this, uh, the system. We have to lie to treatment providers to get somebody into treatment that wants help. We have to tell them that they're using alcohol. We have to tell them that they're using benzos. We have, they have to be... The treatment centers have to be lied to in, in order to get somebody into services. And so we're the helpers, per se, and here we are lying to, you know, to get somebody in. And so we wonder why when they come out of treatment or they come out of other services that they come back to us and they start to lie to us about something else that they need. Well, not for nothing. That's how they think that they have to get services. You have to lie and manipulate the system in order to get it, because they've watched us do it for years. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, be, you know, and even the treatment when we're able to get somebody in, the treatment is is often based around individuals that have, um, you know, addictions to either alcohol or opiates or benzodiazepines, and there needs to be much more, you know, specific targets, you know, towards individuals that struggle with crack use. And um, and we, we still have not done that well, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there, there needs to be a real honest conversation about, you know, appropriate treatments for... Um, you know, for crack users, you know, services tend to be focused on opiates and and, and are applied to, to crack users without even without adaptation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in, you know, users that engage in any kind of support, um, you know, that are kind of like pushed to the side or, or taught something that really doesn't apply to them, it further marginalizes them and alienates them, quite honestly. You know, and uh, you know it, it's interesting to me as well that we, you know, when Kevin and I are out there on the streets, or even if we're doing baseline research stuff, and we're asking people, there has not been a huge decline, if any, in the use of crack cocaine in this country, and yet, you know, I mean, if you look back during the Reagan times when this whole thing first started. 
I think we had, I, I don't know, like 50 or 60,000 people incarcerated as a result of um, uh, illicit drug offenses. And now there, there's upwards of, what, 600,000 people yeah, just incarcerated. We're not talking under the criminal justice. Um, and yet people continue to, to use these substances. You know, you're not going to... You're not going to lock your way out of um, this problem. It, it just isn't going to happen. It hasn't happened anywhere in the world. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, this this is just not a sensible way to approach the problem. Criminalizing these things just doesn't work. It never has. Right. Try we tried it with alcohol. That didn't work. So. Um, but you know what, too, Ken, is yeah. that, you know, I mean, I think that, listen, treatment works. And, you know, maybe the way that we do treatment in this country needs to be looked at and revamped. I, I believe that to be true wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. But treatment works. And getting folks access to appropriate treatment, especially folks that are motivated, um, you know, to move in the direction of, you know, either abstinence or, you know, some kind of change in their life um, needs to be addressed. We we continue to, um, you know, listen, we have people with huge issues around poverty, mental health issues that either go to um, street medications to, to either self-medicate their mental health issues or to buffer the poverty issues or whatever it may be. Um, and until we deal with the underlying issues of mental health, poverty, racism, sexism, um, all these things, then folks will continue to go back to the, oftentimes, the, the initial coping skill that they got from the drugs until they're replaced with other healthier coping mechanisms. You know, it's a, it's a much bigger issue than just the substance. Well, absolutely. People use substances because they work, at least in the short run. Uh, they might have bad consequences in the long run, but they're right. immediately, boom, they fix the problem right away. Yeah, I don't know about fix, but they buffer it. <laughs> well, they make you, know, you forget uh, about it, or they... Sure. They do something. I mean, sure. they, they work They work immediately, but then they carry all these consequences with them, that, all this baggage with them that's negative, especially with addictive use, with heavy use. There are recreational users, even crack cocaine. There are recreational users, aren't there? Probably the majority. There are. We, we, we all absolutely, I believe, that recreational crack users are the minority. I will say that. Um I mean, that's just been my experience, and, and I think some of that is a direct result of the population that, you know, Kevin and I work with. I mean, folks come to us um, that are usually at a place where their their use has caused some issues in their life. Um, however, we, people that use recreationally, um, oftentimes, you know, fly underneath the radar, which is why we don't see them. Um, there, there, you know, there are certain substances that lend to um, riskier behaviors than others. Let's just say that. Um, 
and but well, there's and, uh, you know this this also speaks to the difference in the formulation of the drug and I think you find mm -hmm. more recreational users who have more resources who are more likely to use powder cocaine um, and have those resources to um, to do so such that there aren't negative consequences and they're more much less likely to come into contact with law enforcement um, whereas you, you know crack is crack is a fabulous kind of marketing phenomenon, right? It's made to package and sell on the street. Um, it always has been. Uh, like Mark was saying uh, before, it was filling a real um, economic void and otherwise, you know, concentrated poverty um, in in many urban neighborhoods in the 1980s. And um, you know that's part of its popularity is that it's been so um, so much easier to uh, package and distribute and sell at an affordable price uh, of ten dollars a rock instead of a hundred dollars a gram. Um, but that combined with the way that it's ingested, um, you, know, you know, one is the the trajectory of how quickly somebody's going to get in trouble with the drug. Uh, is is just you know it's going to be generally speaking much faster once you start um, smoking the drug as opposed to you know snorting it mm -hmm. um, and we see the same thing you know with injection lots of folks have used um, either recreationally or without any um, serious negative consequences uh, for a very long time and. Um, uh, sometimes that involves injection. Many times it doesn't involve injection. And then, um, you know, over a number of years, um, that, that's, you know, the folks that we come in contact with is towards the more chaotic end of the continuum. And, and it's very much the same for crack, I think. Um, the folks you're more likely to come into contact with are kind of in a more chaotic episode of, of their, their drug-using history. Um, and you know the the bet between that and the absence of of treatment, um, you know, it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. We can't treat you because um, you're not treatable, so there's no treatment. <laughs> a vicious circle. Um, you know, it's not. It's somehow it's become acceptable uh, that you know, like Mark said, you can go in some of the some given. Um, you know, urban uh, or not even urban, suburban communities around the country, vastly more um, people using crack than who are um, injecting drugs, although many people also inject crack, which is another thing we should talk about but probably don't have time. Um, but the, around of the, the range of services and the funding for the services that are available to folks um, almost always conferred to those who, you know, are are uh, injecting or or those who are um, uh, drinking, of course. And now, you know, we have new legislation that's um, that's um, supposed to um, supposed to um, help ensure parity in in mental health and addiction treatment um, and I, I you know I think it's high time to um, advocate 
in the in the most aggressive possible way um, that there still are not services for folks out there that smoke uh, crack cocaine and, and there need to be. Okay, we've got about five minutes left. I'd like to ask both of you, what, what projects are you currently involved with? I'm sorry, Ken. I, I didn't hear that. I'm sorry. Uh, what what projects are you currently involved with? Uh, what are you, what uh, organizations are you currently associated with? What are you working on right now? Um, I actually have just taken a new position in Boston as the supervisor of harm reduction services at uh, the Roxbury uh, Comprehensive Community Health Care Center, which is located in uh, the Roxbury section of uh, Boston. Okay. I um I've been uh on the faculty of the community health program at Tufts University uh for a few years um now and so uh on the uh, uh that which involves a lot of teaching of course but on the research side of things um still doing a lot of work in the area of housing and housing first um Buprenorphine, suboxone, and and uh, still going around as Mark does um, lots of uh, lots of trainings at various kinds of agencies and organizations, harm reduction related trainings. Um, that's that that and a and a, a new baby daughter pretty much take up. That's a good thing. Okay, I'd like to thank you both very much for being our guests, Mark Kinsley and Kevin Irwin. Coming up next week, we will have Stasia Kosner of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, Dan Big from the Chicago Recovery Alliance. We'll do a little plug before we go off the air now. Our, our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking whether it's safer drinking, reduced drinking, or quitting altogether. And our book is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. Thank you both for being our guests tonight. You're welcome, Ken. Absolutely. Good night. Take care, Ken. Good night. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.